I'm Dan Kendall, and you're listening to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. Did you know that this is just one of the many shows that we create? In fact, from original podcasts like this one, to patient and professional educational content, to digital marketing, and even podcast advertising, we do a lot more than simply host conversations. We're mission-based media. Visit our website to learn more at missionbasedmedia.com. Welcome to Digital Health Today, Asia-Pacific Edition, your go-to podcast to learn about the transformation of healthcare in a region with over 4.5 billion people across more than 40 countries. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. In this episode, we're going to talk about the critical challenge for mental health. Globally, mental health is already viewed by many as a growing problem encompassing various areas, including depression, disorders from trauma, substance abuse, and of course, stress and anxiety. With COVID, we can expect an increase in long-term risk for mental health. And the WHO recently released a study predicting that, quote, the mental health impacts of the pandemic will be long-term and far-reaching. To explore this topic, I'm joined by Nawal Roy, CEO of Homusk, a leading startup helping address the global challenge of mental health through their real-world evidence platform. Let's get started on my conversation. Nawal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. In trying to solve the challenge of mental health, why do you view this as one global problem? The reality is, if you look around and look at 10 people, one of them have this challenge in a very serious way. You know, I'm not a trained doctor, so I'm talking in a language which is a layman's language. So I want to apologize in advance to, you know, our audience, uh, you know, who shouldn't take my words as a uh, deep knowledge insider from clinical point of view. Having said that, when I started uh, building this company, I didn't want to be drawn to only those countries where it can be fixed, you know, say US, you know, or where it is uh, easy to fix or not easy to fix. I would also say that where there is a business model to fix. But uh, my intent was to tackle this problem globally, you know because uh, I could see that how this problem is becoming very, very a strong problem all across the world. And so when we look at mental health and the challenge there, talk about the categories that you use and how you break that down. Clearly, depression is one of those, and there's other categories. What are those? So certainly there is a broad macro divide is into two buckets. One is neurodevelopment, which is, you know, the psychiatry related stuff comes into that bucket, which is around, uh, you know, depression, mood disorder, and what have you. And number two is neurodegeneration, where, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, schizophrenia, and things of that comes into the nature, you know. Those are the two macro divide. The, The reality is there is real challenge of nomenclature in this area. People are still confused between behavioral health, mental health, central nervous system, brain health, neuroscience, psychiatry, you know. Like unlike oncology, which one oncology captures every kind of cancer that is out there in mental health, there is a real challenge as to which term is being used or which sector is being used in that city. As I said at the start of the episode, mental health is a global challenge. And your company, Whole Musk, operates around the world with nine different offices in the US, Europe, and Asia. This footprint gives you an opportunity to see patterns in the mental health challenge. So what can you share with our audience about what you've learned? The reality is that disparate nature of it is uh, certainly perplexing. But the default is when people talk about mental health, they think about depression. And that's not necessarily a bad place to start. 
you know so depression is a serious serious challenge and uh, if we as a company were to choose i would say on the neurodevelopment side we will choose depression and on the neuro degenerative side we will choose alzheimers these two would be the two sub category that would be very very deeply focused on you know so we tend to start from there but the depression is our default starting point in most discussion that's great that helpful context for our audience in terms of the big places to start so you're building a platform which you know requires that you collaborate with others probably mental health more than anything else is uh, requires an ecosystem of different stakeholders, different size organizations, different mentality towards product innovation. Let's talk a little bit about the focus of innovation, which I define as doing something different from a product perspective and how much capital is required to be effective for innovation in mental health. In terms of innovation, you can innovate in multiple categories. Number 1 is just in the domain of knowledge/stigma. okay the empowerment or having a objective set of knowledge or even recognizing that this can be like any other pathology or any other disease acceptance of that from the knowledge component itself is area where a lot of innovation can happen okay that's number 1 so literally how do we get that community level knowledge like no one offends you or you are not offending anyone if you get fever tomorrow you know but if you are telling someone that okay you have mood disorder all on a sudden looks like you have got something that is socially awkward okay that's number 1 so i would say knowledge slash stigma is one component number 2 is diagnosis a proper objective diagnosis that has value you know that is a challenge currently number 3 i would say care care that gets delivered which is driven less by opinion and more by measurement based care or evidence based care and the last but not the least is can we really build digital biomarkers so that we are objectively able to see things okay uh, right now there is a real lack of you know biomarkers that can be used in this area there is a lot of quote unquote survey driven uh, risk scores but no real biomarkers that can define this one can literally innovate in all these four areas okay and last but not the least is uh, can we go upstream and fight battle where there is even you know things like alzheimers there is no real successful trial has happened in the last 20 years so when can be the very first drug that can be built into that area would be another one when it comes to capital if i look at purely from the burden of disease point of view the estimates are that on an annual basis it will touch close to a trillion dollar on an annual basis and my estimates are always that if you are solving a trillion dollar problem you will need at least 1/10th to 1/7th of that to solve that problem okay that means we are talking anything from you know 100 billion to you know 150 billion or so at a macro level at a global scale at a company like us i mean we are very very focused on evidence generation as to how do we really transform you know care as measurement based care and the evidence based care in that area company like holmos can easily use up to a billion dollar in the next 5 years without any challenge Yeah, that's a big number for startups to think about, or and the overall industry to think about, uh, because you're not talking just about technology innovation here. This is the entire ecosystem coming together. You mentioned, you know, knowledge stigma, you know, get breaking through to be able to have an open dialogue at all levels of society, right? Your doctor being open minded, your family being open minded, your coworkers. 
in the U.S., especially, say, cities like New York, you're able to have this part of it is actually not that as big of a challenge and that you can have this discussion pretty openly. But that's definitely not the case in Asia Pacific. You know, when we talk about India or South Korea, those are two countries that for me come to mind where the stigma of having this conversation is really high. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the broad categorization is certainly U.S. versus Asia is right, but also it is a class-based thinking that people who are educated and have certain degree of education and, you know, where this topic has come either in the workplace or somewhere else, and they are slightly aware of it. So there is also a differentiation of where economics plays a big role in the acceptance of the disease itself. So it is highly possible that here is a family that both the incomes are, you know, the, both the spouses are working and their incomes are hundred fifty to $200,000 and up. This has become an accepted norm. Okay, they started talking about it. So that distribution is there in both parts of the world. Yeah, and we're talking about a large number of people here, right? So there's different data sets and depending on what you look at, but, you know, the burden of mental health disorder for some estimate to be, you know, close to 800 million people globally. And that data was pre-COVID pandemic. And, uh, you know, now when we look at the challenges post-pandemic, you know, what's your, what are the, the challenges you expect to be on the rise? So if you look at the broad macro category of the patient pool uh, and where to define into three bucket, mild, medium, and acute, certainly the current care protocol hardly captures to the acute care. There is a very large median subsection, and that's the number that you are referring to. Post-COVID, it has become obvious that we need to pay attention even to the mild to medium category because that volume is really very, very large, and we are seeing the impact of it. And if we don't intervene now, this problem will become so much large that I have started saying that this can bankrupt some of the economy in a very serious way. Yeah, and I have a a six-year-old daughter, and I think about the mental health of our children, and especially dealing with isolation, social anxiety from lack of socialization, separation anxiety for those who've been away from their loved ones for an extended period of time. And, you know, there's a Clearly also a challenge, not just based on class, as like you said, that when you think about the haves and have-nots, but thinking about just the rise that will come from younger people today. And can you talk a bit more when you uh, think about the you know people under the age of 18 years old, where's the emphasis now in your view as to where we should be thinking about solutions to help that particular group? And we don't have to get to technical solutions, but like kind of broadly, what do you think those are? Certainly, I mean, engaging them as early as possible, as young as 11, 12, 13, 14, is a right age to discuss that it's okay to disclose that I'm suffering from anxiety. And that happens quite a lot in that age category. As anxiety becomes serious, and if it is not tackled either by therapy or by a sort of medicine, it becomes a start becoming serious. And, you know, very soon it becomes acute. And the idea is that... Uh, the knowledge impartment at that particular time is very, very important. And no attaching of shaming or no attachment of a stigma is the best thing that can be done through the education system. So literally treating them as an individual and treating this as a pathology or expected pathology 
which can become serious. You know, it's almost like getting a you know bleed cut, right? You are getting a cut, you run to the nurse. You know, if you are feeling that layer of anxiety, and if you need to rush to someone, that person, there should be a place where this person can rush to and talk about. And I think that part of the knowledge impartment can be done at the high school level. That's crucial. That type of mentality and societal change, uh, we need it. So now we've talked about current estimates or you know, nearly 800 million people. We've already said it's larger than that from adults. Add in children and, and teenagers, and that number is even larger. So now we've got this incredibly large number of people who need help. Now, beyond the stigma of having these conversations around mental health, what are some of the misperceptions that exist at the clinical level, at the you know, health system level that are barriers to being able to start thinking about real tangible solutions? The way I start looking at it is uh, to really solve this problem, one can try to solve into multiple areas. But the key problem, you know, and I would be biased to say this, is how do we really translate from opinion-based medicine? So it should not be a function of who the doctor that I see. There should be a certain degree of objective knowledge attached by which, irrespective of whichever doctor I see, uh, that my treatment should be better. Evidence-based care, or how do you do a measurement-based care, is my way of saying that is probably one of the hardest problems to solve. And the focus on that will yield the maximum outcome in terms of influencing the outcome itself. And you and I have had conversations in the past in uh, building on that comment around objective evidence-based medicine. When we think about the efforts that have put in cancer to shift to evidence-based medicine, it's, it's been enormous. You know, there's been companies like Flatiron Health from a startup perspective, and you look at large players and its overall system, there's a huge understanding and improvement that cancer is not one disease. It's a collection of cancer mutations that can be separated out with the right technology to be able to provide the better, a better care. In mental health, that doesn't yet exist in terms of uh, everybody being aligned. We've mentioned that your company is uh, focused on mental health. Perhaps this is a good time to at least give us the headline as to what does Whole Musk do so that people have that context as we move in later into this discussion. So Whole Musk is a data science and digital health company focused on behavioral health in a big way. And what we are trying to do is build one of the largest real-world evidence platform by which we can really reduce the evidence gap. The current care protocol is full of evidence gap, and the intent is through this platform, one can really minimize that, if not eradicate that evidence gap completely. That's the macro goal. At the back of it, essentially, we have three unique assets. Number one is a specialist EHR, by which we interact with the patients. We have a set of digital solutions, it can be called, uh, which sits or can sit on the top of the EHR by which you are able to capture the patient when they are not meeting the clinician. And number three is the deep evidence generation engine, which takes all the data from the real world and translates them into objective evidence. So that is where the journey is. How do you take the data from the real world data and translate them into objective evidence is the key task of that terminal or the key task of that platform. When we started, this used to be our macro thinking. Six years into it, I think we have managed to solve a big part of this problem, going from real-world data to real-world evidence. Now, the ambition is, how do we take this evidence and influence the outcome? And that's where we will be working deeply with 
the payers, we'll be working deeply with the health systems and everyone else to really influence the outcome in a meaningful fashion. Now let's bring this more specific to Asia Pacific. You operate in Singapore, you operate in China. Where else in Asia have you prioritized? So these two places, you know, certainly we are thinking very deeply of Australia. Australia is another very big market in which we want to operate. I think our digital solution will be launched across multiple other countries in Southeast Asia. But as of now, China and Singapore and potentially Australia are going to be our biggest focus. Okay. And three very different countries. If you look at size, maturity of health system, and as you've gone into each of these markets, you know, partnership has been for the front and center of the way that you're tackling this. And it's because it's a complicated challenge. Uh, tell us a bit about a few of the partnerships that you're most excited about in terms of finding aligned leaders in those businesses who share in the belief of the structure and challenges and what you need to solve and these first steps and approach in co-creation together. So first of all, I mean, AIA is one of our biggest partners across Southeast Asia. We are working with them very closely on uh, literally launching digital solutions which can be deployed to a wider set of population. And that's across all Southeast Asia. In Singapore, we have partnered with Institute of Mental Health. And Institute of Mental Health is one of the largest inpatient facility. And we intend to work very deeply into one of the key goals is to find digital biomarkers but also digitize and make data-driven decision-making in a very serious serious way and a scale fashion. So we are very proud of the partnership with Institute of Mental Health. In China, we are about to start work with Johnson & Johnson, and we have just partnered with one of the leading uh, hospitals, Anding Hospital in Beijing, and we will be partnering with a series of other hospitals on that front. Because these hospitals are the ultimate clinical knowledge provider or the way the things get practiced today. You know, so the clinical knowledge and all the, the history of the clinical knowledge comes from these clinical settings. I like to define Holmesk as the biggest plumber in the town. And when I mean plumber in the sense, we bring the biggest set of neuroscientists, psychiatrists, data scientists, and computer scientists. And the combination of this works as a magic. If we get this right, then it's the best of, you know, some people call it data science, some people call it AI. You essentially have the best of next generation of solutions builder, plus the best knowledge of the clinicians that is residing in the hospitals and building solutions that can be deployed at scale. And that's the, that's the key intent. And with these partners, as an earlier stage startup company, there's always the challenge of who can help give me that roadmap so that I can create impact at scale. Now, your past being a super early stage company, you've raised 30 plus million dollars, if I remember the number correctly. And so you have the ability to have some resources behind you. But to grow, startups need business models that are startup friendly. Talk to us about the maturity of business models in Asia for a company like yours when it's specific to mental health. How much is it there right now and where does it need to improve? If I were to be blunt, the business model is not there. Just no one likes to pay, no one likes to spend the dollars, and the sales cycle is just horrendously long. Having said that, the recognition for this is that we need to spend dollars behind it and we need to improve. That is changing dynamically. You know, and us as a company, now that we have a bit of resources, we have always been 
taking the first risk that if I'm entering into a partnership with a, say a hospital or anyone else, I'm more than happy to go and stick my neck out and say that it works and let me take the first dollar of the risk. Whether we will do a pro bono work or whether we will establish the credibility and all of that. We have never been shy of that approach. But after the pro bono or after the pilot or whatever you want to call it, I hate the word pilot by the way. But, uh, you know, after that credit has been done, then to build at scale solution, the business model has to be there. And our continuous struggle is how do we fix that business model? Because the scale of the problem is too large, but the dollar deployed to solve that problem is too small. And it is changing uh, slowly and slowly, you know, but we still have to see someone who is coming with a very deep directional view and say, okay, we want to solve this problem and let's go in a big way. And here is our capital behind it. Whether that is a private investor or a government investor or a government partner, we haven't seen that dollar. I think the only thing we have seen is the recognition of this in all the three markets, China, Australia, and Singapore. The government have gone up to a level where they started literally putting this as one of the critical items on focus because it is leading towards alarming cost to the system. Now, recognition from a stakeholder that the problem is big enough that they should allocate resources is step one. And when I've done work in, in both inside of an insurance company across Asia Pacific and now working across various organizations, I look at this question of pilots or identifying uh, early successes, finding a way that you can show that not only do you have a quick win in you know, alignment to business objectives, but there's a reason to invest more resources. And that, to me, comes back to, uh, can you objectively measure the impact of what you're trying to do? And, you know, you have an audience room full of people or virtual room here of people who are interested. What should my metrics be, you know, if I'm sitting here listening to you? So can you give us some guidance as to what are you seeing that works in defining those early metrics that then lead to the reason to start investing more into uh, programs that support data? The early metrics is engagement. The early metrics is, uh, you know, the impact of that engagement and is that an alternative way of engaging with a person. Engagement in the comfort of that house, engagement in terms of are they asking questions because a going to a clinician is a offline, you know, sort of a very time-consuming and physically consuming, whereas engaging through your mobile phone and ability to ask questions on a at your own convenience is one of the biggest things that can be done. We have benefited from that, from the delivery sector to Amazons of the world. We have seen it a thousand different ways. The translation of that is, you know, the virtual care or telecare in the mental health area or in general in the healthcare is a rising phenomenon. And you will see that happening in a very, very serious way. But I think if you had to come down to, you know, is literally engagement is one of the key drivers. The engagement that can be, attached to outcome or engagement, just purely engagement. It may or may not be related to outcome, but it still solves a certain part of the engagement problem that is very, very meaningful. And so engagement as a starting point is one outcome. And as with any healthcare intervention, ultimately you want to close the loop with the individuals who you've engaged. And your part in closing that loop is being the hub of data that helps to bring all the different stakeholders and interventions, whether it's diagnostics to therapeutics together. 
Now, what do you view as the most important set of partnerships that you need to create to have that closed loop? You've mentioned you already work with insurance, you work with mental health institutes, pharma, hospitals. What's missing for you? Large health system. And I would also say very large scale beyond AIA in Asia, we would love to work with this with a government because this problem is becoming a government level problem. I have always said that I am always shy to approach a government for discussion like this because I can't afford that sales cycle. And hence the rank ordering of our partners. Like we prioritize pharma because that is better than insurance sector. Insurance sales cycle is worse than pharma sales cycle. I would say engaging with a hospital system is even worse than an insurance company. I would say engaging with government is almost impossible for me to think about right now because I don't have the resources to engage with them. But uh, our end goal would be the health system and uh, you know the large-scale government institutions. And so your advice then to the broader audience saying, what's the ecosystem required if I summarize it is, if you have a government health system, you have government policymakers linked with the private sector of insurance, private hospitals, uh, pharma, and you have uh, NGOs or organizations who have the mission of mental health in mind, and then the right technology partners from startup or big company that creates engagement and um, actionable interventions on diagnostics, therapeutics. That's your ecosystem. That's your ecosystem. And engage a startup as a true partner. Don't engage them as a some junior member of the sector. Well, we're coming up on time on this episode. I wanted to thank you for you know, such an insightful conversation about what we want to tackle in this challenge of mental health. Appreciate your time and energy spent against this. One last question for you. What are some of the insights that you feel are necessary to bridge the cross-border sharing of insights, solutions, to different countries. So to say it another way, what should Asia be learning from the West and vice versa? What should the West be learning from Asia in regards to the mental health challenge? So, I mean, Asia can certainly learn to, that there needs to be a spend of dollars behind it. West has started putting dollars behind it and literally treating this as a legitimate problem. And West can learn how digital solutions can move faster than one can imagine. So not get lost by the inertia of the current business model and literally use digital solutions very actively. Well, thank you. Good insight. And uh, we'll put your LinkedIn information in the show notes and any other links that you provide to help our audience. Thank you so much, Nawal, for being on the show. Thank you, Tony. It's always a pleasure. And uh, yes, I'm completely easily reachable. Anyone can reach out and I would love to engage anyone. I mean, we can't have enough good people working in this area. Great. And that's a wrap on this episode. Before I go, here's how you, our audience, can support us. Please share this podcast with others. And if you follow or subscribe, you'll get updates on new episodes and other content. You can also email me at apac at digitalhealthtoday.com if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, through my website, www.tonyestrella.com, you can learn more about my fiction writing and my other healthcare work, including other podcasts. You can also look for me on Clubhouse, Twitter, WeChat, and LinkedIn. And finally, please visit our website at digitalhealthtoday.com to hear other episodes from our podcasting team and my earlier episodes, including season one. This show was researched and written by Taliosa and produced along with Mission Based Media. The sound and music was by Ivan Yurich, 
And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening. Hey, Dan Kendall here. Thanks for tuning in to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. This episode may be over, but there's plenty more where this came from. Just visit our website to find other great shows featuring digital health leaders and innovators. Find us at digitalhealthtoday.com. That's digitalhealthtoday.com.